How we doing? Maine. Portland. Thompson's Point. We've seen toddlers here wearing goose merch uh, and people well into their 60s um, and no one we've talked to has said this is their first show except for a four-year-old. This is Brian. This is John. And this is Sounds of Berkeley. Uh, about a year ago, John, you started talking about this band Goose, and you were real excited about getting the chance to talk to them. Uh, why is that? Well, so last summer, I read this article by the rock critic Stephen Hyden. Shout out to his podcast, IndieCast, where he called Goose the next great American jam band. And he mentioned that a few of the guys went to Berkeley. So those guys are Rick Mita Rotunda, who plays guitar and sings. Ben Atkind, who plays drums, and Jeff Aravalo, who is a percussionist. And then they've also got Peter Onspach on guitar, keys, and vocals, and Trevor Weeks on bass. And these guys are huge. Their album release last year sold out Radio City Music Hall twice. Yeah, so that's, that's when I kind of perked up and realized what we were talking about here. Yeah, so I spent the better part of last year just like trying to find a time to sit down with them for an interview. Um, they've been on tour basically constantly for the last couple of years, as is the want of jam bands. And finally, we were able to get on a Zoom call this spring. Uh, they were in a living room on a tour stop in Philly. But it was a great conversation. They're super thoughtful about their artistry and also about the practical side of like making the band sustainable as a career and as a business. But at some point while we were working on the episode, you came in with this other idea. Yeah, it, be, it became clear uh, working on this that a critical piece of the Goose experience is the live show as it is with jam music in general. And so I thought, man, wouldn't it be great if we could actually see this? And uh, what did we do last week, Brian? We got to see it. We uh, entered the world of Goose. We went up to Portland, Maine to see a sold-out Goose show, and we were able to wander the crowd, talk to fans, and above all else, just sort of soak up the music. Yeah, they played two full sets, uh, which was almost three hours of music total, and that's kind of standard for them. Uh, and the hallmark of those sets is they will take these five-minute tracks from their albums, uh, and they'll just explode them into 15, 20, sometimes 30-minute jams. And I really didn't understand until I went to the show how like thrilling and captivating an experience that was. We had a lot of conversations going in, like, how do you sustain your attention in a 30 minute jam but suffice it to say it was much easier than i expected and a whole lot of fun we got to the song hot tea uh in the show which has a bit of a sort of funk feel to it for most of it and then the middle of this song just went in a totally different direction new melody new feel it really did leave me wondering where we were and then all of a sudden, there was this transition where they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, this is still hot tea. And they bring us back. And it's buoyant and joyous again. And everyone just sort of collectively. Everybody collectively just loses their ever loving mind. Yes, that's that's really what happens. And I thought, this is what makes this band special. Yeah, I think that's right. 
Um, so this episode is going to be something of a collage. Uh, you'll hear my interview with Rick, Ben, and Jeff. Those are the three members of Goose that went to Berkeley. Uh, and interspersed, you're also going to hear some tape from Brian's and my conversations with the folks that came to see them up in Portland. Because there are two sides to the Goose experience. There are the songs, and then there are the jams. What, uh, what brings you out here? A week of Goose. Uh, a week of Goose? Well, a friend and I uh, started in New Jersey, so we saw Monday and Tuesday night's amazing shows. And then we yesterday was a travel day. We're here tonight, and then we'll follow them to Saratoga Springs tomorrow. Well, we saw them on our anniversary at Radio City. Radio City. That was special. Is that the album release show? Uh, yeah, Trey came out that second night, so the second night, 25th. Yes. That was fantastic. Is this your first scoot show? No, I've... Seeing Goose uh, quite a bunch, though. A lot, actually. Guess a number? Uh, I think tonight's 58. 58? Yes. Okay, do you usually, like, how, what's the furthest you've traveled to see them? Uh, Mexico. Mexico? Mm-hmm. What? Uh, why? Like, it's the people first that I've met through Goose. They, they keep me coming back, and when it comes to the music, the band's ability to just take off in a new direction with a song that we've heard a handful of times already is it's super organic goose and that's what keeps me coming back because it's always fresh and a nice heaping of a of jam really my name is rick and i sing and play guitar my name is ben and i play drums my name is jeff and i play percussion talk me through how the band first formed Yes, I mean, it's kind of a long, convoluted history, I guess. There was kind of a band that preceded um, this band that we, you know, we, we played for about a year and a half, and it was a it was a pretty formative experience in a lot of ways. And then uh, that parted ways for for some reasons. And then uh, about a year year two went by, and then uh, we, you know, it was mainly Trevor and I started talking again, and uh, you know, wanted to start playing shows again and start start putting together another band. And, uh, you know, we called Ben and uh, started playing shows in Connecticut. And, uh, you know, for a while, we were kind of just playing locally. I uh, came back to school at that time. And also, I, I finished up school at Berkeley, kind of right when we started the band, more or less. And, uh, yeah, we were just kind of playing whatever we could, mostly bars in Connecticut for a few years, really. And then uh, it wasn't until after I went back and, graduated finally and then uh it was after that that we kind of started getting out on the road a little bit and got a booking agent and just got out there and threw ourselves to the wolves so to speak and how did jeff come into the picture what's it done for your sound to have like a, another percussion element and all that jeff and i met actually like it's probably the first person i met at berkeley right uh first semester we started playing together and you know became really good friends kind of right off the bat and then uh, it's funny that that preceding band, they both played drums in at different times. That band was called Basuda. But yeah, so during the pandemic, Peter and I were living with Jeff in a house with people. And, uh, you know, we were we kind of found ourselves just like very contained in the house a lot. And then, uh, you know, I was working on this record. And I kept asking Jeff to 
to like do a little snare roll layer thing here or just like little little percussion things here and there and then the thought just kind of arose to give it a give it a whirl i think it's it's done a lot to fill out the sound and open up possibilities arrangement wise that you know are really fun to explore and to the two drummers does it change the dynamic in the band to to sort of like make space for each other yeah, absolutely. It's it's been definitely a learning process, but it's cool because we're totally opposite style players. Uh, so we have very different instincts. Um, so it's becoming easier and easier to kind of each navigate our own space without sipping on each other's heels and kind of adding our parts together to create just like one cool collective part together. And now at this point, like we've started like more more and more during shows, like we'll hit the same like accent on like a weird time and like look at each other and be like, yeah, like you did that. It's it's been a cool experience. It's it's not always easy, you know, when you go from the only drummer to playing with another one. It definitely takes a lot of listening and patience. Um, but it's been a really cool experience, and now it's, I think, it affords us a lot more freedoms. Um, I know he keeps me tighter, while at the same time allowing me more freedom to you know hold down the backbeat if I'm going off of something other type of pattern. So at this point, you guys are filling big rooms and you're selling out festivals and people are making podcasts about you and they have these spreadsheets of all your set lists and they're arguing over the best live versions of songs. What's it like to get to a point where you're you're connecting with these folks on such a, a kind of in such a deep way? When did you start to realize you could like do this as a career and people would be into it? Um, you know, things... Things changed pretty rapidly in 2019. You know, 2018, we kind of figured out our formula, so to speak. Um, you, know, you know, we just like figured out more about what directions we wanted to pursue and what type of band we wanted to be and different types of modes of operation that felt right. But we grinded it out for a while and um, like saw like small little jumps in improvement and like a few more people coming to shows here and there, but uh, nothing significant until like summer of 2019. And that was just like a kind of a overnight switch, seemingly. We, you know, we played a few festival sets that kind of grew legs in their own way. And and then, by, you know, by the fall, everything started selling out. And it's kind of just been a whirlwind since then. It's interesting, like, when you're going for it and you're band and stuff, looking back, I was very naive, you know. It's just kind of like, yeah, we'll, we'll play a few festivals and then we'll be good, you know. Um, and, it, it, you know, it ended up taking a whole lot more than that you know, a lot more work and a lot more persistence, a lot more um, ingenuity. But uh, now we're just trying to keep up, I think. What does that look like, you know, building the band out, not just as like an artistic enterprise, but also like in really concrete terms as a business? How has that side of Goose evolved? It, it's been pretty exciting. It feels like we kind of keep like leveling up and, and, and then like we unlock this new person who comes in with all this industry experience and has been able to kind of guide us and take us to the next level. Um, so it's really all about finding the right people with that knowledge. Cause we've obviously never done anything like this before. 
Um, but we've been really fortunate to find people along the way that have really like had our backs and people we can trust and, and know that they're, you know, on our side, guiding us in the right direction. Um, so that's been, that's been everything for us. And, and that's been a, you know, a huge part for growth in addition to the music. What are you looking for in those people? How do you know that it's a right fit for you guys? You know, I think instinct is pretty, is pretty huge, but, uh, I don't know. It's, it, that's, that's a good question and, and a really difficult one to answer. I think yeah. reputation goes a long way. A, a lot of these guys that we've worked with, we met, you know, from meeting other bands that they've been working with. And then we talk to those musicians and talk about their experience. And we've been able to find the people that just come from a long standing track record of like kicking ass and doing right by their, their, their bands they work with. small children it actually reminds me back in the days of like the Grateful Dead so you would see very similar things it becomes multi-generational um, you know some of us took breaks had our children and now it's 20 plus years and sort of coming back to the scene again He was born with the online First presence, show. and so he watched that the big one was Goosemiss on the Rock. He's been a Goose fan his whole life, basically, watching us watch them on the internet, and he, this is his first show, but I mean, we listen to Goose every day. Like, I hope that my kids grow up, because I have two young kids who love Goose now. Yeah. And like, I hope they grow up being able to share with their friends that they were going to Goose when they were two and four, because their parents got them into Goose, but now they're this like big thing and like the sought after show, you know? So I want to rewind a little bit to your time at Berkeley. Um, what people or experiences stand out to you from that time? What were some of the biggest lessons and who were you hearing from that, that have stuck with you? I'd say 171 Mass Ave was a very big part of uh, my time at Berkeley, the drum rooms down there. Uh, I kind of lived down there. I was very involved in like the Berkeley life and community. Before I ever played this kind of music, like I was like a jazz fusion, hip hop, funk guy playing all like the nerdy Berkeley type music. So I, I was really in it. And then it was like a big change when I met these guys and they sat me down and it was like, this is the dead. This is the band. This is fish. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. But yeah, I don't know. I, I was in it at Berkeley. I was I was shedding hours every day, studying and just taking all, all the performance classes I could with with as many of my favorite teachers as I could sign up with. So I, I kind of did two stints there. I did four semesters year round, and then I took about a year and a half break off, and then I went back and finished up again four semesters. So my first two years there, I, I was a performance major, mainly because I wanted a full hour lesson. So I, I took a lot of labs and lessons and that type of stuff and practiced at 171 until I couldn't open my hands, really. And uh, when I met Rick, we would jam a lot. Uh, we'd go to Fordham Road and get a room wherever we could, just on ensemble rooms every night. And um, we played some jazz, but a lot of times we just we just jammed. Not too dissimilar to what we're doing now. 
so that was that was pretty formative for for our relationship and playing together in a group in different styles and that type of thing and then and then, and then in my break from school I, I did a few tours I, I learned how to play bass and then when I came back I switched my major to business and management because I felt like that's what I could learn the most from and I was able to I was able to do the whole the whole biz management uh, curriculum in, in my last four semesters there so I'm grateful for that had a few teachers along the way that were really influential to me uh, one of them was Michael Johnson he was uh, in in the music business program but also taught me arranging he was a big influence Kenwood Denard in the drum program there and then uh, just just all the all the students I met from all over the world I think was that was the best part for me because now if, if we're traveling the world you know I know people in a lot of countries what about yourself Rick yes yeah, like I started as like a dual dual major performance and uh, classical composition actually so I figured that um, you know the performance would I'd be able to pursue jazz stuff that way and then uh, the classical composition was something that always really fascinated me and I wanted to learn more about counterpoint and things like that um, and similar to Jeff I, I did uh, I, had, I had two stints one for about two or two and a half years um, and then uh, you know, I took about a year and a half or two years off and came back and finished for another year and a half. When I came back, um, I, I pivoted to a professional music major, which allowed me to kind of just pursue the little areas that I was interested in pursuing. I, I took some engineering classes, which were really cool. Uh, I took some songwriting classes. Um, the engineering stuff was was really great. You know, in that time off, I'd kind of gotten into doing my own recording again, which I hadn't done since I was young. That's kind of where I started with music was just learning how to record on like a chord 12 track and, you know, making recordings when I was a kid in my basement. So it was really cool to get back to that. And uh, the engineering classes are, you know, they're really great and really challenging at uh, the school there. So I picked up a lot from that. And uh, yeah, I studied with Bruce Bartlett the bulk of, bulk of my time there. And I, I'd say that was probably the most formative teacher relationship that I had there. He's a wealth of knowledge, and uh, we had we had a good connection, and uh, really enjoyed our time working together. I, I just got shout out to my, my teachers since I didn't mention them, but uh, Dave Desenzo and Kim Plainfield, uh, R.I.P. Kim Plainfield, they were like my two main guys. Also, I had a bunch of labs with with Kenwood, Jackie Santos, even like Mike Mangini, who's someone who's the opposite style drummer of of music. I like like he was just such a good guy and teacher. Um, but yeah, Dave and Kim were like my main guys, and. I owe those guys a lot for sure. Awesome. I, I want to kind of change gears and talk a little bit about Dripfield. So this is your third album, uh, and it really, when it came out, it felt like a like a level up kind of record. The songwriting is extremely tight. All the textures are really carefully considered. I'm curious, like, how were you thinking about this as a batch of songs as you went into the studio? There's a few things about it that are different than the previous two. The previous two were obviously way more DIY and uh, were actually more conceptual as a whole, I would say. Dripfield is is more of a, ultimately more of a collection of songs with, you know, a common intention. But I guess from a songwriting perspective, there's there's more emphasis on Peter and, uh, 
you know, songs that I've written with Matt, who was another guy that was in uh, Basuto, the previous band. But yeah, so it was, it's, you know, the more, more of a collection of songs. Shenanigans Nightclub was a very much a jam fusion record. A lot of guitars, a lot of solos in there. Um, and then, you know, that was, that was kind of the intention to that whole thing in a way. But I think the intention was to stray from that quite a bit with this, with Dripfield and focus on other pursuits and other textures and things like that. Yeah, I mean, there's like improvisational pa- passages and things like that, but it's really not the emphasis of the, uh, you know, the record, obviously. So uh, it was really refreshing to stray from that at that point because, um, you know, I don't know, it just felt like a, a uh, proper change up. And I think D. James Goodwin, Dan, who produced the record, was was really the perfect uh, master of ceremony to guide us in that that journey to open up new doors texturally for us. Maybe we can zoom in on uh, one song from this record that I, I think is a really good example of that, which is um, Arrow. So the thing that has always impressed me about Arrow and like about much of the album is there's this real attention to like moment to moment vibe management and like attention to songcraft that's not necessarily what you would expect from a band that goes like out there every night and turns these tracks into shape-shifting 20-minute jams. The song begins with this like really bombastic like Latin influenced groove and then all of a sudden like a minute and a half in we're somewhere completely different. There's this like synthy piano passage. And then over the rest of the song, the thrill of it is watching you like pull that back apart, weave it back together and kind of manage those different energies. What was that like to try and capture in the studio? It was really exciting. We thought that was like the track and it, it didn't it didn't seem to connect uh, that much. But conceptually, it was really, really exciting for us. You know, Dan had the idea to push it in that, uh, you know, Afrobeat kind of direction. But you know the the idea with the chorus was just like the floor the floor drops out, and uh, and it you know just occupies a completely different space. We thought that was like super cool. I think that track is sick, but for some reason it didn't quite click with the people. But I guess you know that's how it goes. Sight stolen again. What do you mean when you say that? Like it clicked with one person at least. I, I assume you're a musician. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe that might be why. I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, no. I, I, in general, people didn't seem to think it was as cool as we did. But, I, I think also a lot of our fans were just so used to the original version that it was like yeah. kind of a shock hmm. to the system. But it was like just I think people were confused maybe a little bit. Um, but yeah, oh. that was we we had a, a blast like. Every every element of, of doing that song was really exciting for us. It was cool. Yeah. It was too heady. Oh, it was too heady. <laughs> you guys do that though. You got you got um like heady body music. <laughs> heady heady body music. Yeah. 
it's like music with a groove, but that's also thoughtful. Thanks, man. Yeah. Cool compliment. So you you pulled that song off the road, like you you were playing it live for a while, and then exploded it in the studio and found this new space inside of it. Uh, is that how it usually works for you guys? Are you are, exactly? Yeah. It's definitely a thing that happens a lot. We tour so much, and there's never a time where like, okay, we're not going to play shows until we have new music. It's like we just keep playing shows. Hmm. So there's sort of this uh, impulse to just when we finish, when we write a new song just to play it. And we kind of do most of the time. Um, there's, you know, there's pros and cons to that, obviously pros being, it's really exciting. Like a thing that's brand new and just playing it in the road. Like, you know, last year we debuted like, I don't know, something 15 songs or something like that. And a lot of them were finished like the same day that we played them for the first time, you know, mm-hmm. live. And, uh, there's, there's just something that's really exciting about that. It's like fresh and we're still working out the kinks and there's a lot of energy around it. And it kind of, uh, made touring a lot more exciting at least personally speaking last year but uh you know then obviously the the drawback to that is when we come out with the next record it's going to be a lot of stuff that we've been playing for a year or two you know it it is what it is it's the nature of of the type of band we are and um yeah i mean part of the fun with that is is going in and, and reinventing where it feels like exciting to reinvent things because, you know, we can do things in the studio that we can't do live. So why not? Uh, I, I was just going to add to that saying that, like, it's such a different energy in the studio than it is live. And oftentimes we'll we'll get into the, into the studio and, and we're, we're trying to track a song that we played live hundreds of times. And you realize very quickly that what works live does not necessarily translate the same way or work in the studio. Um, so automatically, like, right there, like, you kind of have to shift your mindset. But, but then working with, with Dan, uh, DJ James Goodwin, he was just kind of getting us to like think in different ways and it kind of just opened up these like new territories and headspaces. And that studio energy, it's just like a calmer, I don't know, it's, I think it's easier to like kind of like relax and let go. And just being in like a studio with all this like all these cool instruments and like old wooden things and everything, I don't know, it just, it, it's a space that's really uh, it opens up a lot of creative energy. Silence knows me better. You guys seem like a band that thinks a lot about your relationship to the audience. I think you have this understanding that an audience is going to want different things from a live performance, say. What are you thinking about in terms of the like recorded versions relationship to the audience? Do you have different goals for what a listener is going to get out of it or how they're going to interact with it compared to like either a show or a live recording or watching one of your videos? I I think there's a really important difference between being aware of how things are being received and what people are talking about and things like that and uh, letting that inform your decisions as an artist. Because the latter you kind of just lose all integrity as an artist if you allow the latter to happen you know like the arrow thing people don't like it cool like we think it's sick we're doing what we're doing and it's going out there and what people make of it is what people will make of it and it's sort of uh out of our hands at that point i think that's kind of the way it should be it's just we should just follow our instincts and do what feels right and exciting for us and then 
let people connect or not connect with, with whatever they do out there. So last question, what's next? Is there an album on the horizon? Are there things now that seem like possible for you guys to do that didn't before that you're excited about? Like, where are you going? We're, uh, we're playing in Philly tonight. So that's next. That is literally next. <laughs> uh, technically, Cleveland is next because we're already in Philly. So <laughs> look out, Cleveland. Yeah, you know, it feels like we're at this point, you know, if we continue to grow, cool. Like, you know, whatever happens with that, we, you know, respond accordingly, I guess, and, and try to adapt. But um, other than that, you know, the, the real thing I think that we should be striving for is just pushing ourselves creatively to open new doors and, you know, go new places creatively and, and see see where we can go with that. Obviously with music and, and writing and things like that. But, you know, over time we've we've played with other things creatively, not, you know, just, just for fun, which I think really helps helps everything. You know, like we, we made a movie, we've made some, some a few little film, thing, film things that were really just fun for us. And I, I think having different creative outlets really fuels, you know, the main one, you know, which is obviously music for us. So, yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of opposition in our times, I would say, to like real, real creativity. You know, I, I think technology is at the forefront of that. What technology is like doing to our brains seems to me like it's making it harder and harder to be truly creative. You know, I see it kind of across the board as it's like becoming fewer and farther between things that are really original. It's just hard. You know, we wake up and look at our phones and it just like, takes our brains right out of the the space it needs to be in to really like receive new information from from the good the good places but uh not to say that it's not being done and it's not possible so i think just striving to to keep being creative is i'd say the biggest goal that i have all right well rick ben jeff thanks so much for talking to me today i appreciate it yeah thanks for having us man yeah thank you man get work me <laughs> Uh, Good luck on your next stop. At the end of the day, no. I mean, Goose is the next best jam band, if they aren't already. What do you hope for when you go to a new show? Like, what keeps it interesting and different for you? Just their ability to to take a song you think you know and take it to all new levels. So I like to dance. Often I am way up there. The ability to dance and have so much fun with other people, sort of doing the same thing, find that rhythm and get into it. And you just sort of lose yourself in the music for hours. It's a wonderful escape. Watching this Ascension has been awesome because they're they're really good dudes and the music's awesome. What, what they do in the studio and then how it transfers to where we stand today is amazing. Their ability to almost have two sides to the band, Goose. This episode was produced and engineered by me, John Mirasola, and co-produced by Brian Paris. Thanks to all the folks we talked to at The Goose Show. Uh, my name is Shane. Melissa. I'm Tim. That's my wife, Michaela. My name's Allie. 
Sarah. I'm actually, we're sisters. Yeah. Yeah. The goose clips from this episode include The Whales and Feel It Now from the band's July 6, 2023 Thompson's Point live recording, Hunger Sight from the album Live at the Salt Shed, and Dripfield, Arrow, Honeybee, and Hot Tea from the album Dripfield. You can find all these recordings and way more at goosetheband.bandcamp.com. Our theme music is by Sleeping Lion. If you're in Boston this fall, the good news is so is Goose. So you can catch them at the Leaderbank Pavilion on September 14th and 15th. Maybe we'll see you there. Big thanks to the whole Goose team for working with us for over a year to make this episode happen. And special thanks to Pat Ward for being a trusted source on all things Goose through the making of this episode. This was a special summer edition of the show. We'll be back in the fall with more Sounds of Berkeley. In the meantime, you can reach us with any thoughts on the show at soundspodcast at berkeley.edu. Have a great summer. Since